0: in that uh, section of Scripture here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, and if you don't, I just happen to have the passage of Scripture on screen for you. So let me read this, beginning with verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for the way your word directs us and guides us and encourages us and convicts us. We pray that all those things would be true this morning as we delve into this particular passage of Scripture. May your spirit lead and guide and impress on our hearts all that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, as Gordon preached his message on God's purpose in suffering, I was sure he was going to get to this particular passage. And depending on what he did with it, I also thought I might have to rethink what I was planning. I was already in the process of planning this message. I might have to come up with something completely different, or at least adjust it so I wouldn't repeat too much of what Gordon said. So he did mention uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh, but it was just kind of in passing. And I was grateful when, by the end of the sermon, He hadn't even referenced these verses, so Gordon's not here, but I wanted to thank Gordon for not ruining this message. In fact, this message, oh, you're in back, Gordon. I just kind of expected to see you here. He's in back holding up the wall there because we've had wall problems there. This message can probably be considered almost a sequel to last week's sermon, and unfortunately most of you know that most sequels are not nearly as good as the original, but you'll have to settle for what you get today. Gordon had no idea what I was planning to preach, and yet the Holy Spirit did know and does know. And I'm really amazed at how often we've remarked on this before, but how often that the Holy Spirit brings a common thread to our messages, even though we don't usually compare notes at all about what we're planning to preach. I trust that God is in this, and especially this morning. We all have our go-to verses of Scripture, don't we? You know what that means? The idea of a go-to. This phrase go-to is applied in many different ways. A football team might have a go-to play that they always uh, play and it seems to work. A business might have a go-to strategy that always seems to get results. But with Bible verses, go-to verses are those verses or maybe passages of Scripture that we most often think of in many different situations, and we use them. There are some of you who have uh, maybe a couple go-to verses that you always use. And then there's some verses that you never hear anyone say, this is one of my favorite scriptures. Let me give you a few examples. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. And as he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy. That's what it says. They said, get out of here, baldy. He turned around, he looked at them, and he called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. That's not, I've never heard anybody use that as kind of their go-to verse. Or how about this one from Proverbs eleven twenty-two: Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Anybody use that as their go-to verse? Jim uses that quite often, he says. Or how about Genesis chapter uh, 22, verse 21, which tells us about Uz, the firstborn, and Buzz, his brother. (laughs) Uz and Buzz. Wasn't that a Dr. Seuss book? Or how about this go-to verse, maybe used as a really bad pickup line from the Song of Solomon. Can you picture this in a youth group or maybe a Christian college somewhere, and a guy comes up to a girl he likes, and he says this, your teeth are whiter than sheep, freshly washed. They match perfectly. Not one of them is missing. How do you think that would work? Good pickup line? And finally, here's a go-to verse that we men should be careful to never use, lest we get in very big trouble with the women in our lives. From Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 28, While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. So guys, just steer clear of that verse. It will only get you in trouble. But in a more serious vein, we all have these go-to verses, don't we? Favorite verses we routinely use and we find ourselves quoting, sometimes quoting to ourselves and sometimes to others because they're especially meaningful, maybe especially timely, in some way, shape, or form. We find many circumstances in which our go-to verses seem to fit well. I would guess that Romans 8.28 is one of those favorite verses, go-to verses for many of us. It's true, isn't it? It's a very hopeful thing to know that God works together all things for the good of his children. That's true and especially and helpful in suffering. Another go-to verse that's a favorite of many, even though sometimes it's lifted out of context, is Jeremiah 29.11, that God knows the plans he has for us and that those plans are good. Well, I've found that in recent years, at least, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, that we just read, has been the go-to verse that I've gone to the most. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Scripture gives us hope, doesn't it? And we need hope daily. Because if you haven't noticed, life is hard. Anybody never noticed that, that life can be hard? Job 14.1 tells us that life is few of days and full of trouble. And I'm surprised I'm not, uh, maybe internally you're saying amen to that. Life experience tells us that this is true too. Why did the message last week resonate with so many of us? Because at one level or another, we can all relate to sufferings and trials And difficulties in our lives and when we know from God's Word that this is not just something random in our lives and that the maker of the universe includes these things as part of his providential plan for our good and for his glory it's not just comforting it's encouraging encourage means to put courage in I look around this room this morning and I know your stories I know everybody in this room, at least a little bit, and some of you very, very well. I know your stories. I know that one of you is dealing with family issues. Another is dealing with chronic illness. This one is dealing with rebellious or lost children or grandchildren. This one has a hard job. This one might have money problems. This one is wrestling with an ongoing sin issue. We could go on and on, couldn't we? with these kinds of trials and suffering and things that we're all experiencing, at one level or another, all these things are types of suffering. They're trials. And again, at one level or another, these trials bring weakness. They bring weakness. Who among us feels strong in themselves when they're suffering? When they're undergoing some sort of trial or very hard circumstance? No, we don't feel strong. We feel weak. We feel helpless. We feel needy. And God told Paul, that's actually a good thing. God told Paul, this is just where I want you right now. So let's back up a bit here in Second Corinthians. And let's get a fuller picture of the context of this verse that's on your screen and a couple verses we read a moment ago. Paul was angry at the false teachers in Corinth who were deceiving the church. We see this in chapter 11, right before the verses we read a moment ago. So Paul began to boast. This was not something that he was comfortable with and not something that he did. But he, was, he began to boast for the purposes of reestablishing his credentials as the teacher that the Corinthians should listen to instead of these false teachers that were leading them astray. We see in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, beginning with verse 21, so stick with me here. Paul writes, But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman F- with far greater labors far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false teachers. You get a theme here? In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So this is not a tactic that Paul was entirely comfortable with, boasting. But that's why he referred to himself here as a fool and a madman writing like this. But it was necessary in this instance to undermine the influence of these false teachers. Yet it's really important to note what Paul is boasting about. It didn't include the kind of things that we usually hear people boast about or brag about, right? Yes, he reminded them that he was a Hebrew, he was an Israelite, he was an offspring of Abraham, he was a servant of Christ. But most of his boasting was about the things that he suffered. And what a list, huh? What a list. And, you know, uh, verse 28 says, and apart from other things, so... This is not even an exhaustive list, all the things that he suffered. Paul lived a very hard, difficult existence, didn't he? Imprisonments, beatings, near death, stoned, shipwrecked, in danger, sleepless, hungry and thirsty, cold. When's the last time you tuned into a TV or radio preacher and heard them brag about being stoned, beaten, hungry or cold? No, they brag about their Lear jets, their multi-million dollar mansions and their collection of cars because of how God has quote-unquote blessed them. Let's remember, my brothers and sisters, this very stark contrast between what Paul was inclined to speak up versus what so many health and wealth prosperity preachers today speak of. So this is how he ends chapter 11, and this leads us into chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, where Paul says he must go on boasting. But again, his boasting is very different. It's the complete opposite of self-glorifying. He can't even begin to say that this man he speaks of, you'll see this as we continue to read this passage, who had this amazing experience of seeing heaven, is Paul himself. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul says, I must go on boasting. and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So Paul makes a tremendous effort, a great effort here, to not bring glory and honor to himself in writing about this experience. How, again, unlike the TV preachers who boast about their encounters with God and angels. How unlike the modern-day writers who claim to have died and gone to heaven and come back to life, and then they write a best-selling book about it. Paul instead writes this, I refrain from it, that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So let's be clear here. Even though he refers to himself in the third person here saying this man, Paul was given a personal, very real, very powerful revelation of heaven. We know it was him because of what he writes next, which we'll get back to in a moment. But God had made it clear that disclosing all he saw could not be told as he writes in verse 4 of chapter 12. So he chose this roundabout way to speak of it in generalities, self-deferentially referring to himself as this man or I know a man in Christ. Why? Why was Paul so hesitant to speak or write about something that we all want to know more about, don't you? want to know more about heaven, right? We all want to understand this better. Because his firsthand experience is not the point, at least here. The point comes in the next four verses. So now that we have the context of what's surrounding the verse we read at the beginning, let's read it again from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In this heavenly vision, Paul recognizes that it's very possible that he could have become conceited. Some other versions say, to keep me from exalting myself. After all, he had personally witnessed things that no one else had seen. Can we all understand why that might lead to pride and self-exaltation? To being conceited about, hey, God had given me something and he didn't give this to anybody else. He just gave it to me. I must be something special. And if Paul could be tempted to give in to pride, who among us can say, well, that'll never happen to me? So I guess we're better than Paul if we were to say that. Then Paul says that a thorn was given to Now, doesn't that seem to be an odd way to describe a trial or a suffering? It was given to me. At the same time, he recognizes the giver as God, but the instrument of that giving is Satan. God uses even the enemy of our souls to accomplish his purposes in our lives because God's in charge. Ultimately, God's in charge. The enemy surely intended this to harass Paul hoping to make his ministry of the gospel ineffective. Yet we see God turn the tables completely on this and use this thorn for his purposes in Paul's life. Now there's been a lot of scholarly speculation over the centuries about just what is this thorn in Paul's flesh. If there is a consensus, and there's really not, but if there's a consensus close to one, it's that it was something physical because Paul said this thorn was in the flesh. However, even that's not universally accepted because of, think of how we use language. You've heard the expression, that person's a thorn in my side, right? So it could be metaphorical, right? It's used metaphorically, not literally. But in the end, again, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Why was Paul not more specific? I think that's for us. I think that's for our benefit we might have a harder time applying the primary messages that God had for Paul to ourselves if Paul had told us specifically what this thorn was because we'd say, well, I've never really experienced that so it probably doesn't apply to me. But because he didn't, we can all draw encouragement and strength and understanding from these same verses. Even as God spoke this to Paul, God can speak this to us. Paul's point is not the content of the thorn, but its intent, the why he was given the thorn. So even as Gordon noted God's purposes in suffering last week from other parts of the word, we see that sometimes in his graciousness to us, he reveals that purpose. Not always. Sometimes we're left kind of shaking our heads, like, why, are, why, is, why am I going through this? But sometimes he does. So purpose number one for Paul was to keep him from getting the big head, getting all puffed up because of what he experienced that no one else had ever experienced, to keep him humble, to keep him glorifying God and not himself. But that wasn't the only thing that God was trying to teach Paul in this example. As James noted a few weeks ago, wait, there's more. There's more. Paul at first saw two ways that this thorn could have possibly worked out. When he began to pray about it, he could say, okay, Lord, I've learned my lesson, so I'm asking you to remove this affliction from my life so I can get on with my gospel life and ministry. And I can get on. He probably thought that without this prayed-for removal of the thorn, this affliction might hinder his ministry, make him unable to do the things that God wanted him to do. And we know that it was clearly painful, and nobody likes to hang on to painful things, right? But the Lord had other plans and a third option that Paul apparently hadn't considered. Leave the thorn in place. Leave the thorn in place. But why? We'll get to that in a moment. First, I'd like to consider a few things about Paul's approach to this. What did he do? He prayed. He prayed. No, he pleaded. That's not just, please, Lord, do this. That's, God, please. He pleaded with the Lord to remove the thorn, the source of his suffering. There's no hint here in this passage of Scripture that Paul was not supposed to ask for relief, even though we see God's answer to him after he did. He prayed, and he prayed more than once. That demonstrates a perseverance in prayer. If the Lord hadn't specifically answered his prayer in this instance, he might have continued to pray, and that would have been okay. That's also a clear teaching in Scripture. Jesus himself Told the parable in Luke 18.1 where the clear lesson is that we should always pray and not give up. Jesus said about prayer that we should keep on knocking, didn't he? Perseverance in prayer is a biblical principle. So the fact that Paul eventually quit praying for his thorn to be removed is not a lesson for us not to persevere because God answered Paul's prayer. He just answered it with a No. And in God's grace, God didn't just say no. He told Paul why he said no. Here's where we get to the go-to part. The verse that's a go-to verse for me so often. Verse 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God said to Paul, and he says to us this morning, I'm enough for you. I'm enough for you I'm enough my grace is enough it's all you'll ever need even if I never remove the trial that you're experiencing I will leave the thorn in place and give you my grace I'll leave the thorn in place and give you my grace my grace can see you through. It can enable you to handle this trial. And even in the midst of suffering from this thorn, yes, even because of this, I can and will still use you. Because my power, power of God, the power of the resurrection, is made perfect in weakness. The implication is clear. God's power is made perfect in weakness, but God's power is made perfect in my weakness. We've heard before from this pulpit that of all the promises that God makes to us, and there are so many comforting and equipping and encouraging promises, the most comforting and equipping is that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. Because he is with us always, so is his grace. And that grace is all we need we must recognize that nothing separates us from his love, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, and that our spiritual condition is always more important than our physical condition. It's not that God is unconcerned about our physical well-being. After all, he provides for our physical needs, doesn't he? Food, clothing, shelter. He has given us in his grace and mercy medical science that enables us to overcome many kinds of physical afflictions, and even find healing from many diseases. And God is more than capable of bringing divine healing to us when it fits into his plans and purposes for us. But again, our trials, our suffering, always have a purpose in God's economy. So at least sometimes, maybe often, I think it behooves us to ask if God's purposes in some or many of the miseries that I experience are the same purpose God had in Paul's life. With the thorn, God refused to remove, leaving it in place to give Paul his grace. With us, it might be temporary, or it might be ongoing, but can we apply this to ourselves? Suffering generally brings with it a kind of weakness, doesn't it? It limits us. It makes us dependent, sometimes on other people, but always on God. But sometimes that's the point. We can get so self-sufficient that we think we don't need God. Now, few of us believers in Christ would ever consciously think such a thing, right? Gee, I feel really strong, I'm healthy, I have many good traits, I can do a lot of things. I don't really need God to help me with any of it. I don't think we'd consciously think that. But... Do we functionally, if not in our conscious thinking, live like we don't need God? Do we do whatever we do in our own strength? Apparently, Paul was in danger of doing that. He was a man with many natural giftings. He was strong in himself. He was sure of himself. We see that in his pre-Damascus Road days. Apparently, Paul needed this humbling gift of God. So again, if the Apostle Paul, a hero of the faith, a writer of much of the New Testament, needed to be humbled so he could fully depend on God and not on himself, who do we think we are that we don't need the same thing? So Paul concludes this lesson with this in the continuation of verse 9 of chapter twelve, Second Corinthians, and then verse 10. He says, after he says, My grace is sufficient for you, your powers, my, uh, my power is made for Uh, my power is made perfect in weakness, right? He says, therefore, Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And there we have it, brothers and sisters. That's a paradox of the Christian life. Life is hard, suffering is real, and it makes us weak. But when we're in Christ, our weakness is really the only thing that he can use. He won't use our strength because our strength is puny. Anything good that comes from our lives is a gift from him. But when I am weak, then I am strong. That's why Paul is able to write, I am content Can you imagine that? Can we say that about our suffering, about the things we're experiencing? I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Every one of us can see ourselves in one or more of these things. Weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, don't raise your hand. I'm guessing we can all think of at least one of those kinds of things just this week and all of them fall under that larger umbrella of suffering. And clearly, suffering isn't just physical. In many ways, I think emotional suffering can be even more challenging than physical. And then, of course, they often go together, which makes it harder still. We're mentally tormented by the things we cannot control. Circumstances in our lives that we pray and pray would go away, or at least resolve in some way. And sometimes those circumstances we want to resolve aren't even necessarily for our own comfort primarily. It's easy to pray, God, take away this pain that I'm experiencing. But we weep with those who weep. Paul noted in verse 28 of chapter 11, which we read earlier, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure of me on my anxiety for all the churches. That wasn't even about him. He was concerned about his brothers and sisters in Christ. I can't help but always think of Jim Garrett when I read that verse and his relationship with all the churches around America. Paul had a laundry list of the other things, as we saw, which also included physical trials, but included this pressure and anxiety he felt for all the churches that he had planted and related to. For us, this might mean family members who don't know the Lord or are straying or struggling. It might mean some other kind of emotional burden because we care about the suffering of those we love. And again, because we are in Christ, we are brothers and sisters, we we weep with those who weep, don't we? We bear those burdens along with them. I think these kinds of things are also included in our weaknesses, the weaknesses we're talking about this morning. I, too, have a long laundry list of things that I could call trials, and no doubt fall into the categories of what we're looking at this morning. And I have to say that these many things often make me weak. And I am amazed that God ever uses me for anything because I am so weak. Many of these things I wouldn't feel comfortable sharing with you this morning, if at all. But I will share one because I've talked to some of you about those. One of those things is sleep. I can go through stretches where I sleep okay but you know the truth is I hardly ever really sleep well. And there are other times when that can stretch on for weeks, when I sleep minimally and poorly. I feel tired all the time, almost every day. I know of several others in this room who have the same kinds of sleep issues I have and worse than me, Misty, Nancy Harkins, sometimes Debbie, I know there's others. So in recent weeks, I have been prompted, I believe, by the Lord to see this as a thorn in my flesh. And that as Paul heard from the Lord, God can make his power perfect in that particular weakness. Now, God hasn't said a clear no to me like he did to Paul. In other words, I'm still praying God help me sleep better, okay? But I believe in the meantime I need to submit that weakness to the Lord and pray, Lord, in this weakness give me your strength to do the things that I need to do. The things you want me to do. To serve you in the midst of this weakness. To trust you in your grace to see me through. To equip me and to glorify you because without you I am nothing. I am weak. I want to have the same heart attitude of contentment that Paul said, I am content with this weakness, even as I may continue to seek removal of this weakness, because like Paul, like you, like all of us who are in Christ, when I am weak, then I am strong. His power is made perfect in my weakness. So this morning, as we close this message in prayer, You may be like me. You may be able to think of a whole long list. And matter of fact, my guess is during the preaching of this message you've been thinking of those things, those thorns in your flesh that won't go away that you've prayed about again and again and they're still part of your life. So if you can do that, consider what's your weakness? What are your weaknesses? I want to be able to boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ, as Paul said, may rest on me. I want to be able to say to myself and to all of you in your weakness what God spoke to Paul. God's grace is sufficient for you. It's enough because his power is made perfect in your weakness. So as we close, I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but if any of you would like to stand and pray with me as we close, please do that now. Heavenly Father we are grateful for this tremendous truth that Paul had to experience suffering to learn. And Father, we know that sometimes that's how you do it with us. We recognize, Lord, that so often to get our attention for whatever reason, Father, you allow difficult things into our lives so that we won't be self-sufficient, we won't depend on ourselves, but we will rely wholly on and completely on you. So we pray, Father God, that we would get a hold of, in a new way, the reality that your grace is sufficient for us. It's enough for us. It doesn't matter how hard our circumstances are. It doesn't matter what we are experiencing. But Lord, you are enough. You are sufficient. Your grace is enough to keep us going. Your grace is enough to even keep using us, Father, in the midst of our weakness because your power is made perfect in our weakness. Help us to grab hold of that in a new and a fresh way, Father, and may it make a difference, Father, in how we live our lives, how we learn to trust in you, and, Father, how you choose to use us in the midst of our weakness because your power is flowing through us, the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. We pray that we would be able to access that power in a new and a fresh way in the midst of our weakness. So we submit these things now to you. In Jesus' name, amen.